You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I got something I, uh, I want to tell you about. It's a podcast. It's called Aspen Ideas to Go, and it features in-depth conversations with all kinds of innovative thinkers. They are the same folks who speak at the Aspen Ideas Festival. This is the Aspen Ideas Festival podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go. And basically, it can allow you to feel like you went to the Aspen Ideas Festival, which rules, uh, without actually uh, going. So you're going to hear from artists, scientists, business leaders, policymakers, and other fascinating people, uh, most of whom you've probably heard of, but some of whom uh, maybe not. So why don't you check it out? It's called Aspen Ideas to Go, and you can listen on whatever app you're listening to this show on, or you can go to aspenideas.org slash podcast. One thing about this podcast, uh, the long-form podcast, it is sponsored by Pit Writers. And that is the MFA program at the University of Pittsburgh. Aaron and I have been going there for years and doing a, a live episode like we did this week. But we also go and speak to students there. All of Longform's interns for the last several years have been from the MFA program and the English department at the University of Pittsburgh. And it's just uh, it's a fabulous place. The level of work that's being done there, fiction, nonfiction, podcasting, sort of storytelling in all forms, is really just incredible. It's inspiring every time we go. We get to sit with students. And if you are looking for an amazing place where you can take your sort of craft to the next level, check out Pit Writers. There's a link in our show notes right now uh, for the application. It's due the first week in January. But it's just an incredible place, and uh, and they have really made so much of what we do here at Longform possible. It's a lovely thing. And also, I just want to say a quick thank you to uh, Jonathan Eric. He's the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, and really his contributions are what made this event possible and uh, and so much more. So thanks to him, and now here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with two co-hosts. Evan Ratliff is back. Aaron Lammer never left. Is this the episode we uh, we taped live in Pittsburgh? That's right, my friend. Leslie Jameson. You and I just got back from Pittsburgh. It was, uh, it was lovely as always, but I, I got to say, there's something um, particularly special in the air this trip to Pittsburgh, and I would just like to thank Tim Maddox, Rachel Wilkinson, Jean Marie Laskus, all of our friends at the uh, English department at the University of Pittsburgh. Wasn't it? Wasn't it a delightful twenty-four hours, Aaron? 
It was very nice. Uh, Les, uh, big thanks to Leslie for not only doing the live show, not only coming at the end of her book tour with her child, uh, but uh, staying till uh, quite late afterwards, signing books and hanging out with people. I should also thank Leslie. I left uh, my favorite shirt in the hotel and she brought it back to New York for me. That's above and beyond. Full service. You don't get a lot of uh, authors that will take that step for you, Max. Uh, Leslie Jameson, as I'm sure you guys know, is a essayist writer. She wrote The Empathy Exam. She came on the show right after that book uh, in 2014. She has a new essay collection out. It's called Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Uh, And we talked both about the pieces in that collection, one of which the lead piece is uh, 52 Blue from the Atavist magazine about the loneliest whale in the world. So we talked about the articles, uh, the essays in the book, but also how you follow up uh, uh, such a successful book like The Empathy Exams and about writing and living in public. And uh, she was just, uh, she was great, man. She was fantastic. We are uh, brought to you, as always, uh, through great partners like MailChimp, They make it so easy to start an email newsletter. Almost everyone I know has done it. Now I receive many email newsletters. Maybe you'd like to add yourself to that list of email newsletters I receive. Do it with MailChimp. Now here's Max with Leslie Jameson live in Pittsburgh. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Max. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, the last uh, the last time we spoke, we were in like a small not literally the last time we spoke. The last time we spoke like this, we were in this small cavern of a of a recording studio in Dumbo. It's okay, you can use like, air quotes. It was a, it was barely a recording studio. <laughs> um, this is like the spatial opposite, though. It's it's expansive and exciting. Feel like a lot has happened since then. Yeah, I was trying to think even when that was, but yes, it feels like a lot's happened to me in this last twenty four hours. So the answer is almost certainly yes. <laughs> well, this this is the end of your book tour. Uh, I feel like it is a real honor for us to be your last stop on the tour. Is there like um, is there something you like you don't want to talk about? Are you like burned out on something? <laughs> Has, have you been getting the same question over and over again? And I can just avoid that. Honestly, you know. I end up talking a lot about the loneliest whale in the world, but the truth is I could never, okay. no, no, no. I could never burn out on the loneliest. Like we could spend the entire 50 minutes talking about the loneliest whale in the world and I would still have more to say. So and the great thing about most of these is I just don't burn out on them. I like, I have a lot of tenderness for these pieces. So hit me wherever you want. All right. Why, why do you think it's the whale that everyone gravitates towards? You know, I think there's something simultaneously like, concrete and infinite about the whale. I mean, just to give a little backstory on this whale. So there's this blue whale who has a mating song that is higher pitched than any other blue whale that's been recorded, I don't want to say since the dawn of time, since these particular naval hydrophones were installed, I guess, on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Um, He's a blue whale with an extremely high mating call who is always tracked alone, um, never with a pod, as is typical for whales, um, to be with others in the company of other whales. And he kind of developed this reputation as the loneliest whale in the world. And I got interested in the whale and particularly interested in this sort of assorted band of devotees who had become obsessed with the whale. So I think, you know, I mean, I think the people are interested in that essay for the same, for some of the same reasons that 
those people, the whale fans, got interested in the whale in the first place, which is that, you know, the whale can become whatever people need him to be. He can be a sort of mascot for loneliness. He can be a mascot for heartbreak. He can be a mascot for, like, autonomous, adamant independence. Like, I don't need anyone else. You know, he's, he's malleable in that way. And so I think people find their own ways into that story or their own ways of being sort of um, fixated on this elusive creature. What, uh, what was the whale for you? You know, I think um, when I first heard about the whale, and as you know, I wrote this piece about the whale originally for The Atavist, a, a wonderful long-form digital magazine. When I, when I first heard about the whale um, and was working on that piece for them, I, we worked on it for about 18 months, I think, a long time. I had just turned 30. I had just ended a relationship that I had been in for many years. I had just moved to a new city. I think I felt a combination of sadly alone and sort of resolutely alone. Um, None of that personal narrative was in the piece, but I think, you know, when I was sitting there working on the piece, listening on repeat, which I really did, to this one musical composition inspired by the whale made by this, like, uh, singer-songwriter in New Mexico, I did feel this kind of draw. And when I was interviewing people, I think I felt connected to them because often they were articulating their own versions of this sort of my life took a turn from what I thought it would be, which was, which was right where I was standing as well. Why not uh, intertwine all of that in that essay? So 52 Blue starts this collection, and the first sort of third, the first grouping in the book is mostly like reported pieces mm-hmm. like this one, and then the last third of the book are like sort of intensely personal essays. How do you make that choice in this situation? Like, why aren't you more in that piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like the... The truths about what the whale meant to people were truths I could access and access even more powerfully through other people's stories than my own. So the whale as a kind of mascot for heartbreak, like he was resonating for me in that way, but I was more interested in telling the story of the Polish tabloid photographer who had gotten the whale tattooed like huge on his back because he'd come to the whale after his own breakup. And I was more interested in, he actually, to be very specific about his tattoo, and I'm able to be specific about his tattoo because he sent me probably 40 photographs of his tattoo. Like I, I, I really saw it from every angle. Once you get a full back tattoo, you want to, you want to let as many people as possible to yeah. see that thing. Yeah, I can say, if, you, if you're asking me to send you some photos, I do still have them. Definitely not, actually. Um, but he, um, he had, like, um, there were two whales. The design was pretty cool because there was, like, the solid outline of a whale and then a sort of shadow outline behind that. And for him, that represented, like, the sort of this fixed idea of the whale and then the actual whale who was sort of shimmering behind that fixed idea. Um, and I thought that was, like, a pretty smart tattoo design and tattoo <laughs> designs go. I mean, I'm not against them. I have one, but I, I think I, I felt usually I bring myself into a piece because I feel like bringing my own story in can do some kind of work that I can't do another way. And 
in the context of this piece, I felt like I could do that work of showing not just why people got obsessed with the whale, but like the many different reasons people got obsessed with the whale. I could do that work better using other people's stories. Um, and so I think that's why the personal felt like it would simply be kind of striking a note that had already gotten struck and would be struck better um, through other people's lives. How do you, how do you make that choice i mean like at, at what point in the process so that story was assigned yeah and using that one as an example or even more broadly like do you know from the outset all right this is going to be one where i'm going to come in or yeah. does that happen halfway through like how, how does that work how do you make that choice yeah, I, I don't always know. And sometimes I surprise myself. Like sometimes I think I'm going to have a role in a piece and then I end up feeling superfluous. So I cut myself out. And sometimes I feel pretty sure that I have no role in a piece and come to feel through the course of it that I do belong. I mean, one of the things I remember about working on the whale piece um, was that I, I had a real tendency. It was less that I was bringing myself that much into it. And I was really staying on the realm of ideas like this is, you know, I was doing a lot of ruminating about metaphor and I was doing a lot of sort of abstract thinking about what the whale could represent. And my editor, Charlie, kept pushing me. He was like, it's not interesting to think about the idea that the whale could represent loneliness. Like, I want to see an actual person for whom that played out. And he really, so he really pushed me towards more reporting, which I needed. And he knew that I needed because I was like, I'd never really been trained as a reporter and I had very little confidence as a reporter. I, you know, I still am this way a little bit, but like, I would just get really sweaty before I would have to do an interview. Like I kept trying to kind of like back out of the repertorial process by just thinking really hard. And he was like, you cannot think your way out of this. Like you have to interview people. You have to get their specific stories into the grain. So in the case of putting that piece together, I was sort of like digging my heels in against the work that needed to be done and was really grateful to my editor, not only for pushing me towards that work, but also for giving me this portable truth that I've really carried with me, a few portable truths, but one of them being that when I'm trying to just stay on the realm of abstraction, but just get smarter and smarter and smarter, that I'm often actually evading what really needs to happen, which is just to get like the granular texture of like real lives into the frame. Does that get easier? Reporting? Like, do you, do you sweat as much now? <sighs> I do still sweat. Do you ever sweat before interviews? I'm sweating right now. <laughs> um, it does get easier. I mean, I think part of my nervousness when I was first starting out was always wanting to seem smart when I was talking to people who I was interviewing. And so I would ask these long, rambly questions that weren't really questions. And then I would sort of end in that way that I think we've all heard somebody end being like, and what do you think? <laughs> you Response? <know? laughs> totally just trying to like arc it into a question little. And I've like learned to start kind of big and broad and dumb and just say, you know, tell me, tell me about growing up or tell me about, you know, just like really give them a lot of space um, as opposed to privileging like trying to make them feel a certain way about me or trying to get them to respect me by asking a question that's good enough. Um, so I think in that sense, I like, I guess I have a few years of doing it and even like feeling that you could kind of do a bad job at it. And, but then maybe you can interview them again and it goes a little bit, you know, that it's not like the end of the world if it doesn't go that well. And even sometimes it's just a way of starting to get comfortable with somebody too. So right. does that reporting stuff happen in a personal essay? Like, is it binary like that? Like, uh, there's a version of a piece where you go and talk to people 
and sweat. And then there's a version of a piece where like literally it is just thinking about it mm. hard enough and well enough mm. that you figure it out. Or, or for a personal essay, is there some version of talking it out with people? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, I think a lot of a lot of the essays that I write that are largely personal essays also involve some reporting. Um, and it looks all different ways. Sometimes it's like what I call self-reporting, where I'm like going back through my own Gmail archives to figure out like what exactly was going through my head in the fall of 2011. And maybe this overly simple story I've told myself about the relationship that was ending then is actually doesn't hold the complexity of what actually happened, but I can't just sit there and remember the complexity of what actually happened. But it really helps me to go back into old emails and see like, oh, right, I like joined a CSA farm share in 2011 because I thought if I could just get enough fresh zucchinis mailed to my home, <laughs> like maybe I could like make a casserole that would save this relationship. You know, like that's like kind of like that tender, aching, fragile hope, you know, and the things we do in service. But it's like, I never would have remembered that. I wouldn't have thought about that CSA in relation to the death of that relationship if I hadn't done that kind of like personal archival dive. What's the Gmail search that ends up with like, is it like a relationship saving zucchini? <laughs> totally. I know. <laughs> zucchini plus like, is this love dead? I know it's the ways that are like, it's the ways that are like Google searches reveal so much about us. No, it's literally like just doing um, date parameters and just seeing everything that shows up. And then, you know, some of these pieces are also examples of the ways that, like, I do some version of that, like, having a conversation about a thing as a way to think into my own experience. So the stepmother essay, that in that case, I do a lot of, I did a lot of um, just reading into, like, the stepmother and fairy tales, like, the history of the American stepmother, like, was reading a lot of, like, kind of sentimental magazine writing from the 19th century, all as ways of I, I did some interviews, too, with some stepmother scholars. Um, but always of thinking about, like, who has the stepmother been to us? Like, what is this character? What has she meant? Like, what has she held? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's in a lot of these pieces. It's like maybe you're not in conversation with someone on the street, but you're taking scholarship and ideas and trying to put yourself in conversation with them. Does yeah. that sound right yeah. to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, a, I mean, I, I really believe in a kind of boomerang structure of thinking where engaging with something outside of your own experience can bring you back into your own experience, seeing it in some new way, and also the inverse that interrogating your own experience on the page and what might otherwise just be a straight reported piece or a straight critical piece can kind of deliver you back into that outward gaze, sharpened or sensitized to something by virtue of that personal interrogation that you wouldn't have been otherwise. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold with Leslie for just a second. I got a podcast I'd like to tell you about. A story of the gods. A hero's quest. A monstrous force. They're the stuff of legend. Offering a glimpse into a fantastical past and guidance for creating a meaningful future. They're also the focus of the extraordinary tales explored in ParCast Network's new original series, Mythology. Every Tuesday, Mythology delves deep into the history and origins and the meaning of myths. Each episode highlights a parable taken from ancient cultures 
brought to life by an ensemble cast of talented uh, voice actors. They got high quality audio production. They've got all your uh, favorite flavors of mythology, Greek, Celtic. Go ahead, journey further into the epic adventures of Hercules, Odysseus, Beowulf, all your favorites. Discover the captivating and cautionary tales that shaped our modern day world in the ParCast original, Mythology. Visit parcast.com slash mythology or search mythology in the Spotify app and listen free today. Thanks, ParCast. Let's get back to Leslie. That, that thing, like where you bring in scholarship and other ideas how do you do that and make it uh, not boring? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably there are a couple of reviewers who would be like, well, it gets <laughs> kind of boring sometimes. But um, I mean, I really I believe in like sort of setting up questions that then those external things are somehow speaking to. And so you're interested in them because they're speaking to this question, like with stepmoms, just because we're there. At the beginning of that essay sets up like the archetype of the evil stepmother. Like it's like an archetype I think most of us are familiar with. Like fairy tales are full of evil stepmothers. They like send their kids out into the woods. They kill their stepdaughters. They, you know, the kids are banished and beheaded and all kinds of stepmothers do terrible things in fairy tales. Um, and probably sometimes outside of them too. But um, the, but what I got really interested in in the course of that research was that actually there was this other kind of stepmother who was out there in stories that we told, and she was kind of a saintly stepmother. Like she just wanted to take care of these orphan children who had fallen into her lap. And I realized that as somebody who was in the process of becoming a stepmother, I actually found the figure of the saintly stepmother to be much more terrifying than the figure of the evil stepmother because she made me feel constantly inadequate this like saintly stepmother whenever I encountered her I'm not I'm not sending anyone to the woods so I'm like uh, that part's taken care of I'm good I know right the the evil stepmother actually is like really great because you're like well okay I didn't like (laughs) carve out my stepdaughter's heart you know that person's terrible (laughs) that's really bad But I think, so in that sense, like, I at least wanted, or the intention was not just to have that scholarship read in some really dry way, like, so-and-so said in 1942, but then so-and-so said in 1955, but, like, to really have the thing feel animated by personal questions. Like, I thought I was going to hate the evil stepmother, but I actually ended up loving evil stepmothers and hating saintly stepmothers. Like, why is that? How does that turn work? To have a kind of, sometimes when I'm teaching... I say that there can be a couple of different kinds of plot line in a piece of nonfiction. There's obviously the plot line of like what happens, but there can also be a sort of intellectual plot line where you're watching a set of ideas turn in a surprising way. And I, I, that's how I felt about stepmothers. And I wanted to sort of bring that turn into the piece. And so sometimes I think it's like creating the sort of a little bit of dramatic action in mm-hmm. how the ideas are evolving across the course of a piece that can sort of save them from becoming tedious. So it's like, uh, give it some stakes. So it's not just like, I'm using this to back up my point, but in fact, like I'm figuring it out through this. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction too, where it's like, when you just feel like scholars or sources are being invoked as like marshalling evidence, I think there can almost be something that feels sort of self-congratulatory or a little redundant about it. Like, and here's another version of that point, you know? Boring. Yeah. (laughs) And that when it feels like, like sometimes I... 
I think about that with quotations where it's like, if a quotation is just reinforcing what you yourself is are saying, you probably don't need it. But if you're like arguing with the quote or wrestling with the quote or somehow pushing back against the quote, then the quote belongs because it has some kind of more electric work to do. Can we talk about teaching for a sec? Yeah. We're here in the Institute of Higher Learning. I didn't know, I didn't know that you had this job. Uh, what, what's like your actual title? Yeah. So I am, uh, grab the mic. <laughs> very, very serious. <laughs> I'm going to stand up. I'm going <laughs> to, um, I, I'm a, a professor in the nonfiction MFA program at Columbia. I actually direct the nonfiction program there. So I teach MFA students. How do you do that job and do this work? Like just from like a time mm-hmm. standpoint, that seems like a, a time intensive job. How, how do you do that? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I figure it out like week by week. I mean, I I try to, I do best when I like am in one mode at once, but in it really intensely. So I, I do really long days at Columbia where I, everything's just stacked on top of each other. And so I'm like doing like eight student meetings in four hours. Um, and But that means I can kind of try to push it into two days a week. Basically, there are two days a week where I'm full on at Columbia, three days a week where I'm full on as a parent, and two days a week that I am trying to do some writing. Um, Does that feel like enough? I mean, in my ideal world, it's less... This is what... I mean, you must have your own version of this, too. It's less that in my ideal world, I would have seven full days of writing a week. It's more like in my ideal world, the week would have... 15 days in it so that I could spend like seven days being a parent and seven days, you know, writing and one day, maybe a few more days teaching. But it's more just that I want more hours in the day. I want more weeks in the year. Like I, because I love doing each of those things that is part of that arc of the week. Uh-huh. I wouldn't want to push any of them out. But yes, of course, I wish I had more time to write. Um, but I think there's something that happens when the time gets pressurized too. Like it's very, that time is like really sacred to me. And The writing time. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel when I'm like sitting there with my cup of coffee and my little notebook that I scribble in, I still write longhand. Um, it, I really feel like I'm in touch with something that I've fought pretty hard for. You write these essays longhand? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they all start long. I mean, I, t- I type them eventually, but... <laughs> Do you have a computer? <laughs> I know. I know. I actually don't even... I feel like the last time I saw my computer, my daughter was like dragging it across the bathroom floor in a hotel room. <laughs> so it's an open question, yeah. actually, like whether I still have a Currently computer. Currently without. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I like to start that way. And then sometimes it's almost like being on a bike and you like get some momentum and then you're going like sometimes I'll be writing longhand and then I'll sort of like once I'm in the flow of something I'll like move to the computer and keep going and yeah but every everything starts longhand wow it's wild I just want to dig into this like time management thing a little bit more because it is a choice right like it's a choice to take a job like that you're like um, taking on responsibility for a bunch of people. Like yeah. there's now a bunch of people who are paying heartily to be there uh, and depending on you in some way. And I mean, help me understand what that choice, what that job does for you, because it is, you know, unfortunately there are not going to be more days in the week. So it's like- I'm really working on it. Though. Yeah, right. Well, if you figure it out, <laughs> let me know. But like um, it's taking away time from your work yeah. in yeah. some way. Yeah. The teaching does a lot for me. I mean, part of it, 
part of it is, is psychological, but I actually really believe that like the work of being a writer or crafting a life that works for you as a writer is part psychological because it, you have to create a, a life that you can live inside of and want to live inside of. And for me, teaching helps that psychological part of it because I, I a, love getting out of my own mind and engaging with like other minds in a room and other minds wrestling with problems on the page. My students like showing up for somebody and being useful to them is just like an incredibly on a primal level. It's like an incredibly meaningful act to me. And so it feeds something back into just like the larger ecosystem of like being a person in the world for me. Like I love, I love having a workshop where I'm going to show up for that workshop at the same time every week and I'm going to give them my full self. And over the course of that semester, like we're going to build something together that has never been before and it's never going to be again. Like it just, it feels kind of sacred to me. I mean, not to get too pretentious about it, but I, it just really means something to me. Um, and then there's also the kind of craft part of it where really the things that my students are wrestling with are still the same things that I'm wrestling with you know, they're, they're wrestling with, like, how does the introduction of the eye into this book about climate change make it a better book, or does it, you know? And when I talk through those questions with them, I feel like I'm bringing those conversations back to my work, sometimes directly, sometimes more just in that sense of being, like, charged up or excited about what writing can be or what it can do. Um, so I, every semester I teach a workshop and I teach a seminar, and the seminars are focused on ideas like writing the body or writing the pain of others. And this semester I'm teaching a course called Archive Fever where we're visiting like uh, six different archives all over the city. And I mean, that to me, this says maybe a lot about who I am, but it's like so fucking exciting. I don't, what words are we allowed to use on long form? Whatever you want. All the words. All the words. I love that it's, of I mean, course. You, yeah, to be fair, you were so fucking exciting about going to archives, but that's like, <laughs> it's like perfect for the podcast. No, it's totally, I'm like, I love that the subject matter that drove me to profanity yeah. was archives. Like, it's totally predictable. <laughs> Welcome to the long form podcast. <laughs> Completely. Um, but, you know, it's like looking at like a, set of like riot girl zines or you know um a farm wife's diary from the 17th century you know and like seeing just like how she wrote about the weather each day like feeling in contact with this like actual human life that touched these actual physical pages and like tr was trying to process her experience in these completely externalized ways like I don't I, it's all just like deeply moving to me and it gives me this sense of like the world is this infinite place with all these stories to tell so I do feel like I take that energy back from teaching as both through my students and through the things that my students and I are encountering together it's like it's an outside to my own mind and and that feels like enlivening are there like um, financial stability reasons? Is that part of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's a, uh, it's nice to have healthcare and it's nice to like have healthcare for my daughter. I actually, I don't, I don't know how you would answer this question, but I think certain life stability things. I don't care if my kids have healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell. Um, I do, I think my relationship to like pragmatic stuff has been sort of sharpened by her entry into the world. Like I'm like this tiny human being, you know, depends on me. Um, but in relation to the writing, I took the Columbia job or I applied for it and then accepted it 
at really the first time in my career when I could have supported myself financially just as a writer if I wanted to. And I didn't because I didn't want, you know, I had just gotten a, a good book deal. Um, but I knew that like getting one good book deal doesn't mean you're going to get another one. And I did not want to spend the rest of my writing life thinking about what's the proposal that's going to get me like another big deal. Like I, I wanted to try to do as much as I could to honestly like write the books I was excited to write. And I felt like if I had a job job that I could depend on, that I could feel the writing get a little freed up to not have to be either implicitly or explicitly like really turned towards the, the prospect of money. That's kind of reassuring to hear. I, I, I think part of the reason I was asking was like, if you were not able to like fund your life with writing, that would maybe be very dispiriting to a bunch of people who are listening to this thing. <laughs> Uh, but that makes a lot of sense to me. That's an interesting idea that it was like, it allowed you to be more free in your own work and choices. Yeah. I mean, and that's always how I've tried to think about writing and money. Cause I've always like written for free, probably more than I should have, or certainly like my agent would tell you, like I do more writing for free than I should. Um, you're still doing that. Sometimes I, I think I call them ninja gigs because the, um, singer Amanda Palmer talks about like doing gigs that aren't like official gigs but she'll just decide she wants to like play on the beach one night and she'll like tweet about it and then like six hours later there'll be like 200 people on the beach I mean I don't I should say I don't play ninja gigs like no nobody would come to be on a beach with me if I tweeted about it but like <laughs> but I think about ninja gigs as just like sort of imp things that don't make a lot of sense uh -huh. to do because they're not necessarily going to pay or they're not going to pay that well but like they speak to me in some way like I just wrote this like little essay, this kind of like lyric essay inspired by the movie Hereditary um, for these like screenplay books that A24 films are putting out. And it's like, I didn't even ask, I mean, this is the kind of, I like forgot to even ask them whether they paid for it. I was just like, yes, you know, because I, I knew immediately, like I had an idea and I wanted to follow it. And so. Well, A24 is totally broke. So that makes sense. <laughs> I know. I probably wasn't a good answer to that question. Um, but there's a way that I've always, even before I had any kind of success as a writer, I was always paying my rent other ways. Like I was paying my rent through like my day jobs or retail jobs or like my other grad student life, like because I wanted to be able to just write what I wanted to write. It was about like protecting the work. Yeah. I mean, it was also about like, I couldn't see a good way to be like a freelancer supporting myself, but I did have like a job at a bakery. So like was going to work that job. But yes, it did. I realized at a certain point that it was permitting this relationship to writing where I could just follow the writing that I wanted to be doing because the the rent was getting paid in, in a variety of other ways. Did the um, pressure increase after empathy exams? Like the pressure on what you were going to write once the world was really paying attention to what it would be? Yes. I mean, I felt... I felt grateful in that way that I already had a strong idea of the next book that I wanted to write. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but I knew I wanted to write a book about addiction and recovery and creativity um, that was this strange hybrid thing that was bringing my own life into contact with this archival stuff and this reported stuff. And, and so the initial feeling was a kind of sense of satisfaction that's 
book that I never would have been able to sell on proposal if I hadn't had a successful book before. Like if I didn't have any kind of name, somebody would have looked at that and been like, okay, you were never in prison. You just like drank a lot of white wine. You want to bring all these fucking archives into this book. You know, like it just would have been a tough sell and nobody would have bought it. So I think initially there was this feeling of like, oh, it's the same thing that creates more pressure and more expectations is also actually literally enabling me to sell this book that I wouldn't have been able to sell otherwise. And I know I already felt passionate about the idea of that book. So it was almost like um, I had like, sort of snuck my way into the city inside this Trojan horse or something and then yeah. could just like do as I please <laughs> once I got there, you know? Um, and so then, I mean, then I had to figure out how to write the book, which like, you know, did have a lot of pressure attached to it. Yeah. And then what about with this? So, I mean, like uh, you write this collection of essays, which as Sarah said, when she introduced you, like uh, ushered in a golden age of essay writing how do you think about putting another collection out into the world? So I guess I should say first that I, you know, I I don't think it's, I, I definitely think that like empathy exams was like understood as part of this like beginning of the golden age of you, the essay. Uh, it you didn't... ushered in a golden age of essays. <laughs> it did. I mean, I just, I just sort of say like, fact. <laughs> people have been writing like really amazing essays, like pretty continuously. You invented for a long time. the essay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Response. <laughs> no, this is when I just drop the mic and just leave the stage. <laughs> um, you know um, what I, you know what I'm asking though, right? Yeah, like, I do. You, you wrote a collection of essays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many po- more people read it than maybe you expected. Yes, yeah. And so the the question is like, you sit down to put out another collection. How much is the reception to that last one informing yeah. the choices you make, both in how you're going to structure this book, what's going to be in there, but also like doing it at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, I mean, I just love the form of the essay so much. And I, I believe in the marrow of my bones that it's an inexhaustible form. And so it felt very intuitive for me to keep writing essays and to keep being excited about each new essay as its own thing. But I did think really consciously part of, and this actually gets back to one of your one part of one of your first questions that we didn't really get to around why the book is structured the way that it is um, moving, as you said, from this first, the first section is called longing, and it's largely composed of these larger reported pieces. The second section is called looking, and it's largely composed of critical pieces about um, writing, about photography. One is a piece of cultural criticism about going to Sri Lanka to see the aftermath of the Civil War. And then the third section, but they're critical in in their primary mode. And then the third section is called um, Dwelling. And it's largely personal essays, although many of them are personal in this kind of slanted way that we were talking about. They're also in conversation with other things. And part of what I liked about that structure was that it felt very directly to me like an inversion of the structure of empathy exams. It, empathy exams started in a very personal place. The title and first essay of that collection is about my life as a medical actor, but it's also about an abortion and a heart surgery experience and sort of how the desire 
for a certain kind of empathy or thinking through empathy happened inside of those like deeply personal experiences. And it moves from that very personal essay into sort of looking outward at different things and some more reported material. And I, I like the idea of thinking about how a different structure creates a different reading experience. So to start in this more repertorial gaze, kind of looking outward at the world, and then across the course of the book to confess some of the baggage and some of the personal reckonings that were like motivating those inquiries. So how was my own thinking about domesticity or claustrophobia or what it means to keep showing up for love? How was that sort of saturating some of those early reported pieces? Um, I was, I like the idea of creating a structure for the book that was very different and almost opposite to the first collection that kept it interesting for me. Was there any part of it that was about the degree to which people had gotten to know you? Like you are so present in the empathy exams, you cannot come away from that book without feeling like the reader knows you pretty well. And I, I wondered, like thinking about the structure, whether on some level it was like, you guys are going to have to wait. <laughs> like uh, if, you're coming for, if you're coming for the Leslie, you gotta, you're going to have to go through all this other stuff first. Was that any part of it? There, I mean, there was a little, I mean, I definitely wrote it with an awareness that m many readers who read it would be coming with some sense of at least the narrator the narrator version of me they'd come to know in the empathy exams, which is really like me in my 20s. And a lot of this book is like me in my 30s and my life looks pretty different. Um, and I did, I think I, I like the idea of sort of delaying some of the personal revelation, partially because I think I wanted to play a little bit with some of these hierarchies of rigor that people bring to nonfiction, where like, the most rigorous nonfiction is like reportage and personal writing is this kind of like easier thing that often women do. And, and I think I wanted to sort of say, okay, look, this is me doing the sort of hard edged rigorous thing. But across the course of this book, I'm really going to challenge the idea that like that's any more rigorous than this work. And furthermore, I'm just going to say it's like the same person doing all of this work, like the same person who's out there being a reporter in section one is also a person sitting here having feelings in section three. And like it's to me, it's always most interesting to look at how those are parts of the same sort of consciousness or the same human mind. Um, so I think in delaying some of the like personal, it was also this, there was a little bit of a desire to like play around with the impulse to kind of categorize those sorts of work at all. I think it might've had a different question that I didn't ask directly, which is basically like when something like that happens with a book like that and you become this character in people's lives, is there some urge or how do you avoid sort of playing the character? I think the question I'm actually mm. trying to ask is like, once you know there's going to be an audience for this mm -hmm. thing and they're connected with you personally, like, is there any gap that's introduced between who you are and who you are on the page? Does that gap exist? I mean, the gap, the gap always exists. Like, the gap always exists between who you are and who you are on the page. And I think it's... And, and did it widen? Um, no, I mean, I think I was conscious of the fact that the narrative self that was going to be constructed by a lot of the things that my life had been in the last like six years since empathy exams came out, there was sort of a, 
I don't know. There was a way that it looked like everything sort of works out for this narrator, right? Like she gets sober, she gets married, she has a kid. You know, there's this kind of like coming together plot at work. And so I think there was a part of me, I I wasn't thinking about this in a super intentional way, but when I think about it now, I think that if the book had been too structured around sort of narrative spine of the personal arc, there would have been almost something unsatisfyingly neat or resolved about it, which would have been a false sense because we can be messy and unresolved inside of all kinds of lives. But I think I was more interested in creating a different sort of arc, not just like, okay, you know, the girl you saw like drinking too much and getting hit on the street and like cutting herself in the empathy exams, like look at her now, like she's married and has a kid and, you know, that has sort of like made good in some way. I didn't want that to be the primary motion of the book some kind of plot of like growing up and so I think I think it was more interesting to me to like really try to work through certain ideas about say the difference between like longing for something and like living with something or living with someone and to try to use reported material and personal material to get at those questions and I you know I don't think I purposefully tried to widen the gap between myself and the character on the page because I had become a kind of public commodity in some way, if that's part of what you're asking. But I, but I do think I wanted to play a little bit with it. Like the, you know, there's a tattoo. I have the tattoo of the epigraph to empathy exams, like on my arm. And the tattoo shows up a lot in this book as this way of sort of consciously reckoning a little bit or almost arguing with the narrator of empathy exams and what she believed and so in a way the tattoo becomes a sort of way of having um a conversation between this book and the last book and a kind of conversation between the narrator of this book as somebody who's like roughly 10 years older than the narrator of that last book so what is the uh what is the gap like how do you think about that what's your definition of you on the page and you right here yeah i mean The most basic, like, stupid way to put it, I guess, is that there's just so much more of me than the narrator on the page. So, like, Maggie Nelson, you know, at one point says, you know, when readers read my work, they think they know all of me because they don't know all the stuff that's not there. And so on one level, it's like, you know, what you see when you read the narrator in any essay or even a bunch of the essays is, like, what I have carefully chosen to reveal and what I've chosen to reveal about it. So it's just like all the life experience that's not on those pages is like the gap between me and that narrator. And, but I think the more specific answer is like that whenever I'm, and this connects back to what I was saying earlier about only bringing the personal into a reported piece if it feels like it can do some kind of work that couldn't happen otherwise. It's like, I, don't I never write personal narrative for the sake of writing personal narrative. It's always like that something about telling this story for my own life can help me investigate some sort of question. So in that sense, the me who's on the page is always deployed in service of questions and her experiences are always being like sort of marshaled in that way. And the me who lives in the world is like, messy and has a lot of experiences that probably don't mean anything or spends a lot of days just like walking around a park with her kid, you know? So um, I think there's a a sense of distilled 
not necessarily profundity, but like meaning questing or meaning making that's like a part of the narrator on these pages that, you know, it might seem like Leslie is always having some kind of intense emotional crisis or some sort of intense emotional epiphany, but like... It might seem like that. (laughs) But real Leslie is often just like having a regular day. Uh, Sometimes people also tell me that my narrative self is a lot less... um, sort of like takes herself more seriously than myself off the pages. And I, I thought that the recovering was going to be the book where I like kind of like came out as like a funny, like kind of a funny writer. <laughs> <laughs> but then the New York Times, like the, the word that's like emblazoned in my mind from the Times review of that book is just like humorless, you know? And I was like, oh, I guess I totally failed the one time I thought I was going to like make somebody laugh. Um, but I am interested in like how certain parts of being in the world don't necessarily show up as much for me on the page. And I think sometimes humor is one of those. I think like content wise, like my friendships are a huge part of my lived experience of the world. And I almost never write about friendships. So, and I don't necessarily have answers for all of those things, but I do note certain things that are big parts of my life that don't seem to show up in my writing that much. I think you're super funny. <laughs> Thank you. you. I kind of really set you up. You like had to say that. <laughs> I don't find you humorless in the least. Um, But there's another thing, right, in this book compared to the empathy exams, which it feels to me like there's a theme that runs through these essays, both the personal ones and the reported ones, which is like actually uh, life does not need to be lived at like the absolute Mm. extremes. It's not all about like epic peaks and crazy falls, but actually it's about being like steadily present. And I think that comes through a bunch of times. So it's interesting that like, for you, that gap is about like discarding the days walking through mm. the park with mm-hmm. your kid. Cause it, it, it felt to me like there's sort of like a, a directness, particularly in the personal stuff at the end, I think that wasn't exactly there in the first one. But one of the things is like, it seemed to me at least that you had come to think like part of this is like, excuse the cliche, but like one foot in front of the other and like uh, just sort of like being there and showing up. Yeah, I think that's a really smart way of thinking about part of the difference between this book and the last essay collection is that this book is interested explicitly in dailiness and an ordinary experience. I do think that the demands of art still mean that there's like a lot of distilled emotional intensity, even in illuminations of dailiness, right? So like eating a lot when you're pregnant, which is like, if you're pregnant, it's a daily experience. But it's sort of, it, you know, it's like it's charged with a certain sort of feeling in the context of this essay. And it was charged with that feeling in a kind of broad, overarching way. But it wasn't like every time I was having like a third pancake when I was pregnant, I was like, oh, my God, myself in this moment is in dialogue with my like anorexic self 15 <laughs> years ago. And, you know, it was, but but the essay kind of withdraws those things out. You so, know? But like sometimes a pancake is just a pancake. Sometimes a pancake is just a pancake. Yeah. The essays in the collection, they span several years. I don't know exactly when the earliest one was, but my understanding is that you revised them a fair amount yeah. for this book including like changing titles, but also pretty like substantial changes to the pieces themselves. How did you think about that? And I guess both like why make those changes and then how do you feel having like uh, two versions living in the world? Yeah. Yeah. So the essays 
span about seven years. The earliest one I wrote in 2012, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of the earliest ones I revised really, really substantively and in ways that were really exciting too. So that earliest essay is a personal essay called The Long Trick about the men in my family and the sort of emotional and physical distances that have characterized many of the men in my family. And, you know, part of what happened, and I revised it five years after I wrote the initial version, and a lot of things had happened in those five years. I mean, I just had five more years of like living in relation to my father and my brothers. I had become a parent and sort of I could see that relationship a little, I saw it a little differently from the other side. Like, so one of, to me, one of the most important moments in the whole book was one of the revisions that I made in that essay where I sort of turn at the end of a section in that book and say that at a certain point I was able to see that like all those years I had been longing for this distant father, like he had some part of him had been like longing for me as well. And to me, it makes it like a categorically different essay. Like it's, it just, it points in a different direction and it sort of undercuts its own truths in this important way. But I, I wouldn't have been able to authentically feel that when I was 30 writing that first version of it. Like I came to that sense of my father or what it, what it was, how he wanted things that maybe he hadn't been able to have or to give. I came to that through living. So some of that revision work was like a product of being a slightly different person than I was when I wrote them. I also dedicated the book to my dad. And I think that that desire to dedicate it to him was part of that same, was continuous with that same internal process that had made that revision in the first place. But then there were other pieces where there was a more concrete element of like the piece about past life memories, which we haven't really talked about that much, but I wrote on assignment. I wrote it for New York Magazine, uh, who killed it because it wasn't what they wanted it to be. And so it found a home at Harper's. Um, and But even for Harper's, it was still a pretty straight reported piece. Like it was one of the straightest pieces I think I've ever written. And I always knew that the version of the piece I wanted to write really was much more, was like going another layer underneath writing about these families with kids who had past life memories to say, why was I so fascinated by these families? Why did I feel so defensive of these families when other people made fun of them or said, well, what, like sort of absurd would they believe? Like this whole question of like what we even believe about a self when we believe in reincarnation, like it was like the magazine writer who had been like constrained and chastised by like several sets of editors then got to like go free in this book. So like, how do I feel about having two versions of it in the world? Like I felt like I had been waiting like five years <laughs> to put this version of it into the world. And it probably helped me like play nice with editors at the time because I had some part of me that was like, someday, like, I'll get, you know, I'll get my so, chance. So these changes were mostly just like, uh, fuck you to the editors? <laughs> so, and there was, like, was a little bit, was a little bit of that energy. Because um, there's different, like, titles, too. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, well, in that one, the, so Harper's ended up calling the reincarnation piece Giving Up the Ghost, which actually, I, I did like that title, but I had always wanted to call it We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live Again, because, I don't know, because I wanted to have, like, an inside joke with Joan Didion, like, that was, like, my, <laughs> my great dream since I was young, um, but I knew that I wanted the piece to be arguing with a kind of 
skeptical dismissal of the way that we craft narratives to explain our lives or survive our lives. Um, and so I, I, I just always loved that title that I knew a magazine was never going to let me get away with. So it had been waiting in my quiver for quite some time. I love the idea that like part of the reason to do an essay collection is just to like make all the changes that you like lost the battle with the editor. Although I should say the flip side of that is that there are certain pieces in this collection, like 52 Blue about the whale and um, a piece called Sim Life about Second Life that I wrote for The Atlantic, where I consented to making them shorter pieces in part with this feeling that like, oh, I'll get to put out the longer version that I really love in this essay collection. It, it helped me like kill some darlings and yeah. things like that to believe in that hypothetical horizon, but that I actually ended up keeping like the largely shortened versions because I actually believe that the essays were stronger once I let go of these things that I wasn't quite able to let go of. So I think there was also a way that like telling myself about this like future version was a sort of useful it was like a way of like just closing my eyes and like keep a couple like darlings yeah. in the like yeah. desk drawer yeah yeah do you feel like there is some singular like essential question that this book is asking or that you were trying to answer yeah i mean I, I i really feel like it's coming at this question like how are we defined by the things we don't have and do you feel like you like uh, found an answer? We are defined by things we don't have. <laughs> but you should still read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the Cliff Notes version. But it, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to know that is just it, it does feel by the end like you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all the questions that I'm asking in my writing are like questions that I'll never be done answering and the editor, Jeff Schatz at Grey Wolf, who I worked with on Empathy Exams, who's really wonderful. He once, in like kind of in a teasing and very benevolent way, said, you know, probably every book you ever write will just be like more empathy exams, you know? And, and he, did, he really didn't mean that like it's all you're destined for, but just kind of like this is an inexhaustible inquiry. And I do think like, I, I mean, my writing is always basically like, asking what does it feel like to be alive and like how do we ever try to understand what it feels like for anybody else to be alive and so in that sense I feel like on the intellectual level it's like I'm always going to keep sort of chasing the same unanswerable things but yeah on a personal level like there's a lot of happiness getting recounted in some of these personal essays but it also felt important to me that like the end of the book is really literally a beginning to, I mean, the last line of the book is my daughter's birth. And so in that sense, there's a kind of resolution there, but it's also just like everything is just starting. Like that feels very true to me about it too. Leslie, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, Pittsburgh's own Janelle Pfeiffer. And our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, and our friends at Pit Writers, who once again brought us down to do a live show there. It's just always great going there. The whole crew, Jean-Marie Laskus, and uh, everyone else at Pit Writers, they just um, they make us feel at home. 
you know, it's a special place. If you are interested in joining a special place, go ahead, go apply. The link is in the show notes. Applications are due the first week of January. Thanks to them. And uh, thanks, of course, to Leslie Jamison. I could talk to her forever. Okay, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.